This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 86 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and today my guest is one of the most influential figures in the world of comedy, Matt Walsh, who co-founded the Upright Citizens Brigade improv group in the early 90s, and who this summer became, for the first time, an Emmy nominee in the category of Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series for his hilarious portrayal of Press Secretary Mike McClintock on HBO's Emmy-winning series, Veep. Over the course of our conversation, the 51-year-old former correspondent for The Daily Show and fixture of Todd Phillips' movies opens up about why he abandoned a career as a psychologist to pursue improvisational comedy, what improv, as he understands, teaches, and employs it, really means, how he, Matt Besser, Amy Poehler, and Ian Roberts first connected and decided to form UCB, how UCB led to other showbiz opportunities, and how improv plays an integral role in the making of Veep, and what it's like starring on a show that mocks the insanity of politics at a time when real-world politics are about as crazy as one can imagine. It's a fascinating look behind the scenes of comedy today, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Let's go to it. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Matt, thank you so much for coming in and doing this. To begin with, we always just ask, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Great question. Uh, I was born in Chicago, Illinois. My father owned a business that moved heavy machinery for printing like newspapers and baking industry and stuff like that. So I, I got to go to a lot of jobs where they were tearing out presses that weighed 200 tons, wow. and I actually worked for them for a year. And then my mom was a housewife who raised seven children. So 
She was busy. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so you go off to Northern Illinois University, and from what I understand at that point, you dabbled in acting a little bit, but this was not your focus. And in fact, you went in a very different direction at first, right? That's correct. The first acting bug bite I got was the senior variety show in high school where we got to make fun of the teachers. And I was totally charmed by like the power of comedy and people laughing at you and being able to take down a figures of power. And then I didn't do anything. I did one acting class in college, which I really liked. There was a weird thing in college where the guy who taught my acting class was this lovely, sort of preppy, slender, quiet man who, when we graduated, he's like, come by the office and I'll write a little card that tells you what you need to work on. Yeah. So I was really excited to see that personal note about what I, what I do well and what I could work on. And I went there and I asked around. He wasn't there and he had been arrested. <laughs> For fronting bail bonds to prisoners. He had some scam where he was moving money with prisoners in jail. Oh, my God. And, like, turning it into currency. But, like, the most unlikely candidate for that kind of crime you could ever imagine. So I never got my... You never got... I never got my final, like, (laughs) inspirational, like, you're really good at comedy, but you need to work on drama or whatever. Oh, my God. But isn't that, like, a weird... Yeah. Like, truthfully, the most unsuspecting individual, (laughs) charming and sweet and shy... It's never who you expect. I don't know. He was so sweet and a great teacher. So now you graduate. and I was a psych major in college, psychology major. And, and you figured you're just going to become a psychologist? So my second senior year, I discovered improv. A buddy of mine saw a show at Second City, and they said, we teach classes. And he came up to visit, and he's like, you should take classes. So when I was a senior at Northern, I would drive in once a week and take improv classes. So that's when I started discovering comedy and improv. And then when I graduated... I moved in with five guys from my class in like a two-bedroom, a little comedy ghetto. And we started doing sketch shows. And in the meantime, I was pursuing psychology. I got a job at Northwestern Hospital on an adolescent psych ward for disturbed kids as a counselor, as a mental health worker. So you're dealing with that during the During the, the day, day. <laughs> and then at night I was doing sketches and partying. And it was quite a dichotomy. And then I spent about a year and a half doing that. I took a break for four months, went to Europe because I was... It's very difficult work, and anybody who does social work, nursing, psychology, God bless them. And I was taking some postgraduate courses, so I was still thinking I was going to do that. When I came back from my walkabout in Europe, I was like, I have to do comedy. I can't handle the responsibility of making someone well, because if I made a mistake, like, God forbid, what if I didn't diagnose something? And how did your folks feel about this decision? They didn't like me being poor. Like, they visited (laughs) me for probably eight years in Chicago, and every place I lived, they're like, oh, my God, and... Got my mom, God bless her, would make like frozen lasagnas or, or bring like 10 pounds of peanut butter. So she always took care of me. I just was willing to be poor and strung together whatever odd jobs I could get. And at that time in your life, what was the pinnacle in, in your imagination? What did you think you were aiming towards? I liked the joy of collaborating and creating sketch and video. And I think we, when we first moved in, I think we had the illusion that we were all going to be on Saturday Night Live. I think that was the illusion. And then I actually did stand-up for about a year where I was getting paid because it was like 89 or 90, and you could make real money. So that was really exhilarating to make money. But stand-up is is the most difficult art form, I believe. So I was not able to ride the highs and lows of that art form. But that was the goal. And then cut to four years later, I got hired by Second City for the touring company. And again, being paid consistently... To be a comedian, I never had a real job since, since 94. Amazing. Well, let's break down those years, though, when you were doing it 
but before it was a secure thing, I guess, starting in 94. First of all, what were some of your improv-related activities in Chicago? Can you tell us about, I mean, I've heard about you actually worked pretty closely with Dell Close. Yeah, that's right. I got pulled into the Players Workshop and then did a sketch show with a group called Department of Works at this club called The Roxy, which is no longer there. But The Roxy made its name with people like Judy Tenuta and Emo Phillips. And there were some other sketch groups who came out. Guys like Paul Gilmartin and Jimmy Pardo were running around that area. And then it's at that place that I met Matt Besser, and we started doing projects together. And that turned into Upright Citizens Brigade. At the same time, I was also doing a group called the Annoyance Theater, which was sort of alternative to Second City, where we would improvise for like two or three months and create a play, mostly musicals, like parody musicals. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed that because I'd never done musicals. So I was doing that as well. And then I took Second City class in there too. And so what... From Del Close, though, were oh, you Del able Close, to sorry. just out of, no, just out of curiosity? I mean, I, I he's come up in a few of our episodes. Most recently, we had Bob Odenkirk on, and he was another guy that was just enamored with Del Close. And I just wonder if you can explain for people who aren't from the comedy world who this guy was and why he was helpful to you. Yeah, Del was the guru at a place called Improv Olympic, which I think I got involved in in 1989. I'm going to say. And he trained people like Chris Farley and Mike Myers and Bill Murray and John Belushi. So he was a legend, and he was returning from Los Angeles to teach again when I got him. So he was the keeper of long-form improv, which is different than something like Who's Line. Long-form is you get one suggestion, and then you create the game yourself. Mm -hmm. So it was just like, I don't know, sitting in front of Jesus. He was the legend. He would just tell you stories about people. And you would get on stage and he would give you really harsh. He was really mean. He was really mean. He would give really harsh notes. So you were sort of like an old guy. He was an old guy at that time. He was probably 60. He had battled with drugs his whole life. And at that point, he was only battling with nicotine. Uh So he was in a little better place. But he was the guy that you wanted to impress. And the lessons I learned from Dell in that improv Olympic training were like, try to create something new that's relevant to your generation. He made you consider being a professional satirist and what he did is he would give you reading lists like you should read Dostoevsky you should read War and Peace you should read all the great American literature so he you should read the newspaper every day you should see pop culture you should see movies you should have adventures to enrich yourself so when you're on stage and someone says play a doctor or talk about Tolstoy you are able to do that so to me it made comedy an attainable profession and also to act professional about it, to yeah. pursue it in a real way, not just to goof around on stage and get drinks. And so with that perspective, you then, two years later, I guess, in 91, meet Matt Besser, as you mentioned. And then how did you guys connect with Amy Poehler and Ian Roberts, with whom, as I understand it, you guys all collectively co-founded Upright Citizens Brigade? So I guess, first of all, how did those personalities come together? And then what was the conversation that, you know, we that led to let's start this place. It had many evolutions. In the early 90s, Upright Citizens Brigade was, you know, me and Besser and McKay and Horatio Sands and a guy named Armando Diaz. And we were just doing shows and floating around town. And then Ian came in around that time as well. And then from like, I don't know the years, but basically Matt and Ian kept the group alive. They were they were the core of UCB. And then in like 93, Amy came to town. I think she started dating Matt. Wow. And she was just an incredible talent. 
And so she got put into the group, and then I kind of committed to that group full time in like '94. So there were various incarnations, but the core four of us were solidified in like '93. Mm-hmm. And then we committed to sticking together, doing shows. And then in like '96, we decided to move to New York. So Ian, Amy, and myself quit Second City and told Kelly, the guy who was the general manager, that we're going to pursue our dream. Because we idolized groups like Kids in the Hall or Python that stayed together and had a voice. So we sort of agreed to turn down auditions for other things that would pull the group apart. And Kelly was like, you know, you're never going to make it. So many teams come in here, say they're going to achieve success as a group. Trust me, you should stay in Chicago. And so we moved to New York in 96 with a couple of stage shows that we'd been running in Chicago and just hit the ground running in New York in like March of 96. And it was, it sort of clicked from the start? No. (laughs) No, we were poor. I had to sell my car. I had to borrow money from my brother. But the way we approached it is like we had six-month commitments. Like if we're not feeling like this is going to be a success in six months, we can disband and go home. But we had enough success doing a show called Luna Lounge on the Lower East Side in New York. We would do a show called Stella that David Wayne, Mike Lee and Black and Show Walter invited us to do. And then we started this improv show called Ass Cat, which has been our cornerstone, which is just an improv show with the, you know, the funniest people we knew. And fortunately, when we arrived in New York, there were all these Chicagoans writing for Conan and Saturday Night Live, like Adam McKay, Andy Richter, Brian McCann, Brian Stack, Tina Fey. So we folded them into our Sunday night show and in return or not in that they needed to, they started putting us into bits on Conan or bits on SNL. And that's basically what let us pay our rent. So having a little nest of friends that we could land with in New York helped keep us alive. And then eventually that is what led to you guys having for a few years the thing on Comedy Central? Yeah, we basically ran around New York. And then our first gig, we wrote for the first internet comedy show that Microsoft was paying us to do with people like Todd Berry and John Benjamin and Leo Allen who I was roommates with Leo Allen in New York, very funny writer who show runs out here. And then I think our first gig is we made a pilot at Comedy Central with a guy named Kent Alterman who now runs Comedy Central, and he sort of championed us through the the ranks there. And then we went to the Aspen Comedy Festival, which is no longer existent, and we made a name for it. We we won the trophy. There's a trophy for best new act. And so coming off of that, we got greenlit to series. And then nice. we, we were fortunate enough to do three years of UCB on television. And the first year was all the sketches we had done from Chicago and in New York. And then the second and third years, we would tape our two ASCAT shows that we were doing every Sunday night. And then we would call ideas or scenes from that and use that to generate material for the next two seasons. Was the Comedy Central arrangement the first thing that sort of allowed you to breathe a little easier about having yeah, a living? <laughs> it was. I mean, being truthfully for me, being on Conan was like I could call my mom and say, hey, watch Conan tonight. I'm on. Yeah. You know, that validated the, sure. the chase of success. But truthfully, having our own show with our own name on it was a huge like relief. Yeah. But we kept working the whole time. We And we opened the theater the same year we started our first season because when we did ASCAT starting in 96, we found all these young people who wanted to learn what we were doing. So we started teaching classes, all four of us, and then directing little improv shows or scripted shows. And then all that money we made would just go into Ian's wallet, literally, (laughs) and it would pay for flights to LA to do a showcase or to make a movie. And then 
we realized that this little theater we were performing at on 17th Street called Solo Arts was being programmed five nights a week by students that we had coached. So we decided let's have our own clubhouse. So in 98, we found a strip club that Mayor Giuliani had shut down. <laughs> Went in there, broke all the mirrors, took the stripper pole down. Right. It was a runway sort of set up. So we cut the runway in half and pushed it in a corner and made a stage. It was very oh, wow. sort of punk rock lo-fi. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess this would be as good a time as any to just ask you if we can define some of the terms here that we're talking about. Sure. For pe- and particularly, because I, I think it's it's often misunderstood, just what improv actually means. And, and just anecdotally, for whatever it's worth, I always just assume that it was you're seeing something happen on the fly. I did an interview with Eva Marie Saint, who was in On the Waterfront with Marlon Brando. And I had always heard about this scene in On the Waterfront where she drops a glove, he bends over, picks it up, and puts it on his own hand. And people referred to this as, you know, normally in those days you would have just cut and done a clean take, but they included that. So the legend, I guess, has been that that was an improvised moment in the movie. But what she said was, no, in fact, when we say it was improvised, that happened during rehearsal, and Ilya Kazan said oh, I love that. Let's do that. So they did it again in the scene. So for when when you're working on something like either Upright, Citizens Brigade, things that you were doing with them, or now on Veep, when people say, oh, they're improvising, or that scene was improvised, are we actually saying something happened while the cameras were rolling there, or is it based on something happened during rehearsal or whatever, and then we said, let's keep that for when when the cameras are rolling? Well, in Veep, we use improv in the process of rehearsal. So we do what Elia Kazan did. We rehearse and go off script, and then we find nuggets, and the writers write them down to create a better version of the scene. And then when we get on stage, 95% of what you see has been pretty much written and rehearsed. When you talk about Dell, that's the classic division. Dell's theory was that improv unto itself was worthy of an audience sitting down and watching and an art form that needed to be respected. There were guys in Chicago from Second City, I believe it was like Sheldon Patinkin and Paul Sills, who believed no improv is a tool to use to make things better. So that was Dell's genius. He said long-form improv could sustain itself and be a show that's worthy unto itself. So that is the classic distinction. That's what Dell gets credit for, and that's what he should get credit for. And improv, the way I describe it, is learning to write on your feet. It's learning to make choices and I can only speak about comedic improv, Mm -hmm. is learning to make choices that will sustain a comic premise or game and will get people to collaborate to discover and explore a topic, an idea that will feel like theater, that will have a base reality that we agree on and that we can find something funny and keep the ball afloat, if you will, throughout the scene without knowing anything beforehand. And the rules to that are like yes and, meaning if, if you say I'm a doctor, I don't say... No, you're not. Like, you have to agree. If you create something, it's like building a wall brick by brick, and together we build this reality. It's also saying, like, if that's true, then what else is true? Like, if you're a doctor, oh, then I'm a patient. If I'm a patient, then you probably have a disease or a problem. (laughs) If you have a problem, then I probably have instruments in the room to diagnose that. You know what I mean? So there's certain tenets that we teach or that you learn along the way to write on your feet. That's so interesting. And and are there divisions even amongst your friends and colleagues about improv in terms of which form they buy into? Yeah, like 
There are. There are different schools. There's Second City. There's Improv Olympic. There's UCB. There's there's I think there's like 16 schools in Chicago that teach improv. And we, the three of us, me, Matt, and Ian, wrote a book about our beliefs on improv. So there are different approaches. And like the simple way to put it is like there's theatrical improv where you don't have to be funny. Comedic improv, which what we sort of teach at UCB is like try to get to the base reality of the world and then try to get to that funny thing and keep it alive. And then there are other forms that allow you to have like serious moments and then it goes back to comedy and then it goes back to serious. So I think the rules are probably generally the same, but the focus in different schools can be different. Like the Groundlings focus on character. They really develop character. That would be a departure from what we, not yeah. that we don't do characters at UCB, but that's what their focus is. That's their primary, yeah. Do you think that it's purely coincidental that someone who was heading towards being a psychologist, which is a profession that demands great listening skills, wound up doing improv comedy, which is a profession that demands great listening skills. Is it just coincidental? I think that's a, that's a very keen observation. I don't, no one's ever asked me that. I would agree because my experience, and when I teach, I don't teach anywhere, when I used to teach, I always tell people that listening is the most important skill. It absolutely is because what listening implies is that you're willing to drop your idea and accept what someone's giving you and to build off of it. And the scene is in front of you, so don't get obsessed with your thoughts and your ideas and your premises and don't be writing in your... You have to do both. You have to write and listen at the same time. But don't be writing so much that you ignore the gifts that are being given to you by your scene partner. So listening is the most important skill for improv. And there are classes I've taught where we just go hardcore listening and really focus on what it is to listen and and give people permission to go slowly and don't worry about the pace and don't worry about getting to the funny. Just learn to identify what's funny or unusual and then focus on that. From what I've read about the process on Veep, which I'll ask you more about in a minute, it sounds like the thing that you have to remind people who guest on the show about is that I think some of them are thrown at first by the way you guys create your scenes and you're saying like, Starting off slowly is okay. That's like how a lot of this ends up getting discovered. Yeah, we have legit amazing actors. Even people like Gary Cole, who's, I love that guy. Before I met him, I'm like, you're a genius. He came into our process, and he's a real theater rat. He came out of Steppenwolf in Chicago, real pro. And he stepped into our process. And our process, when we, like I said, we get a script, and then there's things, oh, this scene doesn't work, or we need something here. We'll kind of put the script down and just fumble our way through it. And I think when people come into the V process of rehearsal, they're worried about, as I was, they're worried about, oh, this isn't funny. I'm not helping. But you have to like kind of let go of that and realize like it's I think Julie even says like nobody knows what they're doing. Just just fuck it up right, right. and we'll get there. And what it is is like you have to have those terrible mistakes to get past. And that's where you'll find something. And that's what people learn is like, oh. You don't have to be great. You don't have to give them gold every time. Don't worry if no one's laughing because the journey, if you're really just kind of like throwing caution to the wind, right. that's the best attitude to have. So I think every actor who comes in, whether it's a guest actor or guys like Gary who come in to be, even Kevin Dunn, who's another amazing actor, I think he was like a little like, what is this? Oh, I'm not doing well. Because I know when we did the pilot, we spent like two weeks in London with Armando and the writers. The first week I was calling my wife every day back home and I'm like, I'm going to get fired. I'm not. No one's laughing. This is terrible. But they're just looking for little nuggets or just truthful moments. And, and it probably builds on itself. It does. It does build on itself. And you find 
even if it's not funny, you'll, you, sometimes you'll find a plot point. Oh, they wouldn't go there. They would actually go here. Or he would actually be in charge at this moment. Or she would. You know, There's real value in the improv. And it's the looser and the more forgiving people are on themselves, yeah. the better it goes. Very interesting. And just before we really zero in on Veep, I want to just ask you about a few other things that people associate you with. And one of them is The Daily Show. You were in there in very early on, right? I was there... During 9-11, which was a crazy time to be in New York, oh obviously. God. And so I started, I don't know, 2000 and went to 2000, end of 2001. Yeah. And it was great. I remember being like the first reporter to fly after 9-11. Like that's when, when I think of The Daily Show. Yeah. And John gave us this wonderful speech when, you know, literally when that happened, I lived in Chelsea. I went up to The Daily Show because it was a work day and no one was there. And we closed down for two days, and then we came back, and John's like, is everyone okay? Is everybody okay? And it was very like comforting to have a, a job in a, in a community. Uh, obviously, UCB as well. And the other thing is I remember UCB, this is totally off topic, yeah, but fine. two days. I think Letterman was the first guy to do a show after 9-11. That was like a let's get back to work yeah, kind of yeah. vibe. So UCB, I think, on the same night did our first shows after 9-11. And I remember like watching those shows, and everything you said – had like this, oh, it could mean death. It couldn't, like, any innocent word, like Valentine's Day is like, oh, people aren't going to have, like, right. it was interesting to watch a comedy show in the context of that tragedy. How did you see that yourself working? Everybody was saying, do, you know, they talk about it, but with SNL, when they've came back as well, do we have permission to laugh again and all of that? What's, how, to, as a comedian, do you process that? Well, I think what I was saying is like everything you watched felt like it was in bad taste, right. but it was innocent. It was just right. people trying to do simple comedy yeah. scenes. So the lens was impossible to avoid. So you, but the, the impetus to do that was just like with Letterman is like, let's just get back to work. And the other part of it was like going to the daily show and, and sitting down with the whole crew is like the same with UCB. There was this community of people who were lost and crushed. It's like, well, at least I have my friends and let's just do what we know. Let's just yeah. put on a show. And it was almost like going through the motions and, having faith that eventually this is going to start feeling normal yeah. again. And it was comforting to have two communities, The Daily Show and UCB, that helped me and my friends kind of land on our feet and get back to some level of normalcy during that. And UCB comes up because you were, even when you would have other TV projects or things like Daily Show or whatever, you have always continued to perform with UCB? Yeah, we had that Sunday night show called the ass cat which is basically like pick up basketball you just show up put your shoes on and get on stage mm -hmm. and i love having that because it keeps you sharp so that was sort of like it's not church but it was the ritual on yeah. sunday it was it was very comforting and it was a great way to see your friends and yeah. i still do it you know oh, not sorry. every sunday because i have three kids yeah. but I'm, I'm still there yeah and ucb just for people's reference has outlets in multiple places, right? So this is going on not just in New York, but where else? Los Angeles. We have two theaters in New York, and we have two theaters in Los Angeles. That's great. Yeah. So the other thing, quickly, I've got to ask you about, because I, I, I really, truly have no idea how this started, but it's been interesting to note that you and Todd Phillips have <laughs> have a overlapped on, I think, every one of his movies except The Hangover 2, which might not be the worst thing to if you had to miss I think one. Two and three. Two and three. Oh, I yeah, three. Two and three. So, <laughs> and I, I, I will never forget your, I believe in Hangover 1, 
You have the line. Well, I'll, I should let you say. What's there's a great line. Uh, is it get a map and go fuck yourself? Yeah, right. At the corner where's of the, get a map. Excuse me. Where where's the you know whatever they're asking you for directions? The chap, where's the white chapel? <laughs> and I think, and I'm probably saying it wrong because people do ask me to say that a lot. But I think it's it's a it's at the corner of get a map and go fuck yourself. Yeah, fuck off or something. Yeah. Which is <laughs> funny. And I think I give credit to Todd because that was a scene that he was trying to make funnier. And so we tried different versions of that. But the, the goal was to make the doctor suddenly rude. Right. And I think Todd pitched that line, if I'm not mistaken. So how do you and he know each other? And and are you just sort of each other's lucky charm or something here? How is this? This has gone all the way from old school, maybe even earlier, through the present. Scott Armstrong is a friend of mine. He's a writer. He wrote Road Trip with Scott, his first yeah. movie. So I think Scott put me on Todd's radar. But I went in the room with Scott for Road Trip to play a crime scene photographer. And I literally think he just found me funny and, and a bit of a muse. Like, he really enjoyed my personality and my willingness to improvise. And then when I did the movie in Georgia for one day, I improvised some stuff, and he loved it. And then he had a, a real affection for me for what, you know, justified. I don't know how amazing <laughs> I was, but he was smitten, I think, a little yeah. bit. And then old school, and then scoundrels, and then... Due date and then handful. I've there. done like four or five with Todd Hangover, yeah, Amazing. and Starsky and Hutch. Oh yeah, and I think he, and then in a couple movies I was actually called Walsh, <laughs> and then one, and Walsh. I still had to audition and one Walsh. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think I'm, I think I'm Walsh in two and Walsh in one, <laughs> but I still had to audition for each of these. The Walsh characters, yeah. I think you still go in the room because it's not a done deal. But they wrote the part with me in mind. That's just like screwing with you. It's going to happen. I don't know. I don't know that it necessarily is. I think they, they have to convince. If it was up to them, I think they would have put me in no problem. But I think there's still studio right. execs that like want to <laughs> weigh in. All right. So what was going on in your life when you first heard about, I guess it would have been a script at that point, Veep, or maybe even just a concept? What was, what was going on? It was... Uh... Script given to me by my agent, and I instantly recognized Armando Iannucci's name because I love Alan Partridge, and I loved In the Loop. Maybe I hadn't seen In the Loop, but it was more like Alan Partridge. That's one of the greatest comedy characters ever, and he was one of the creators of that. And I definitely wanted to get in on it, so I got an audition, and then I went down to Allison Jones over in Santa Monica, and God bless her, I kind of read it, as written, and she's like, you know, I think they want improvisers. I think they want people to play with it. So I kind of put the script away, and I was able to sort of do a little more of what I can do, yeah. and that got me a second audition. And in the second audition, I was in the room with Julia Louise Dreyfus. Had you ever? Met I always her say before? Louise. It's Julia Louise. Yeah, Dreyfus. Okay, I'm glad she's corrected me. You do it too. I'm glad that. No, I, she's corrected me, and I love her. And I, <laughs> Julia Louis Dreyfus. I was in the room with her. And so then it's more like a chemistry test. And again, they encourage you to be loosed and we hit it off sort of. And then the third audition again with Julia and maybe Anna Klumsky was yeah. already uh, guaranteed to play her role. And then in the fourth final audition, you go to HBO headquarters and you're in a conference room like this. You know the story. You got the and, that, and there's like your version of you is in yeah, the room yeah. and your version of that character is in the room. And then they pull <laughs> you away and you sign your life away for five or six right, years. Right. Then you go back and then you go into this giant conference room and there's like all these shadowy HBO execs in the back of the room and it's the antithesis of comedy <laughs> and somehow I you know I, I ran that gauntlet and I got the part wow so how quickly did you realize this was 
not, you know, you've been on TV series before and even on HBO, but not any of those or very few series generally were of the caliber, I would say, of Veep. So when did you realize this was something special? I think once we got into the process, truthfully, like because of Armando's pedigree, I knew it was going to be smart and funny. And the pilot script was amazing. Like it was one of those scripts in like the comedy community everybody was talking about and the agents were excited about. And then I think once we got into the process where he like flew us to London for two weeks and I felt like this process on top of the amazing writing and obviously Julia, I was very optimistic. I'm like, there's something really special. Like if the process is good and the writing's good and the talent, uh, the other people who obviously filled out the cast, Mm -hmm. I was very optimistic. Like this is going to be a good show. I don't know if anybody's going to watch it. Like that's the lightning in the bottle element. Like, cause I've been on good shows before and they don't come back. Right. (laughs) <laughs> but this was good. And obviously HBO was like, they gave us a long leash. They're like, we have faith in this guy, Armando and Julia. We're going to let you guys figure this out for a couple seasons. Now, how do the writers, how did they at that time, when it was still a new idea, how did they feel about the idea that we write a script and then people are going to go off of it? At some projects, that's not always necessarily welcome. But like in terms of they, they just understood from the outset that improv is going to happen and they're it's just they're providing a guideline basically well the scripts always came in good like they would write great scripts it's not like they they gave us an outline and say figure this out right, for us right. like they did their work and there were jokes and there were good plots so the the improv was always used in the rehearsal process and armando encouraged that because he wanted to see it and i also think that because they were brits who completely understood American politics and all of our garbage culture, all our dumb <laughs> television references. Like, so they were versed in like two languages, yeah, yeah, politics yeah. and garbage culture. <laughs> but there were elements that they wanted to make more American. And I think it required us to embody what they created. So they would write something in British and then we would say it in American. Right. So I think the show required an interpretation and it required collaboration. But I also think Armando is one of those guys who wants input. And I think his the oeuvre of his various shows yeah. has proven that. He always wants people to add to it, and he gives freedom, and he'll give you a free take where you can just mess around. As you went along and you were finding out who Mike McClintock was, what were the tenets or whatever you would say that you discovered that have held true all the way through? What is the core of this guy as you've created him? I think in the pilot he was sort of described as a dinosaur who was stepping into the 24-7 news cycle in the social media world, and he was a guy who did not come up in that. And so I based him on Chicago politics. I grew up in Chicago, and Chicago politics is about relationships. you got to know a guy who knows a guy. So I've always clung to that. Like There's that famous story where Obama came to Chicago and he wanted to get involved in the Democratic politics there, and so he showed up at a guy's office, and he's like, what are you doing here? Oh, I want to get involved. He's like, who do you know? What do you mean? Who sent you? Nobody. Okay, you can't have a meeting unless... <laughs> Basically, you need a blessing to right, sit down right. to interview? Like, So I've clung to that. I've right. clung to that sort of machine relationships politics where you can control the story by giving the first question to the Times or the first question to Us Weekly or whoever's right. in the room. But it's, obviously, it's an outdated mode. But that's sort of where the core of Mike lives. And how about in terms of the way he relates to other characters or they relate to him. I mean, the I think recently in, in a joint interview that you did with Julia, they asked her, describe the relationship between Mike and Selena, and she said, 
or, or the, she said, describe the relationship between Selena and Mike, and she said, it's like the relationship between a baseball and a bat. Quote, Mike keeps coming around the home plate to be hit. Mike also has a moral compass, though, which is really fun when it rears its beautiful head for us to bat it away. He's a dear and competent soul. <laughs> Close quote. So that's the interactions with her. But you basically have to have a sort of rules, it would seem. Maybe it's not, maybe you don't think of it this formally, but in terms of Mike's interactions with all these different folks, I mean, Mike and Jonah seem like polar opposites. Yeah. Well, I, I personally love playing the straight man or like, I think it's really funny to be humiliated, like humiliation <laughs> comedy. So I'm willing to shame myself or endure anything for you a laugh. It doesn't hurt your feelings. I have no problem. I'm yeah. not attached to that. <laughs> Although there are times in the script where they like, write an insult that attacks one of your characteristics, like your mustache or your, <laughs> your baldish head. You know, and those things kind of sting a little yeah. bit. But in general, I like the license to go, like, more humiliating or even dumber. Like, I love yeah. the freedom to, like, play things even dumber and get away with it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that answers yeah, your question. Yeah, no, it does. It does. So speaking of Julia, what is it that makes her so good? Because I feel like there really haven't been many female comedy actresses or, or male comedy actors who have ever managed to work at such a high level for so long and seem to be universally revered by not only people they work with, but critics and everything. I mean, what's your, you see it up close much more than anybody else I'm going to talk to. I'd love to get your take on what it is that, that she does that other people can't do. I think attention to detail would be the simplest way to put it. I remember being in early table reads of season one. And as an actor in a comedy, if Mike has a line, it'll say blah, 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 blah. And the last line is like, the, the tagline is like, eh, or what are we on, the Ark of the Covenant? So my eyes are just running through everything that leads up to that blow, that big punch at the end. And what I would observe with Julia is like, she would find little like turns and twists and laughs before you even got to the punchline. And that speaks to like meticulous attention to like, oh, there's so much here. So she doesn't need a lot to create laughter or to find things. Like she finds so much and so little would be the simplest way to put it. On top of that, that's the professional side. She's a great collaborator. She's generous. She's a good hang. She's, you know, inherently funny. Obviously comedy, you know, you can teach people to act well or to improvise well, but to make someone funny, mm -hmm. I think it's a, sort of a intangible genetic you know predilection you, you're sort of born to kind of be a little funny perhaps so all those things combined I guess truthfully too which might be underrated is, is great actor yeah. like really great actor like full-on commitment to this fake reality like she is a great actor you think she could great or, actor could or would ever do a dramatic part I'm sure she could if she wanted yeah. to it seems like comedy is more fun yeah yeah <laughs> truthfully it really is a blast like there's no better thing than being on a comedy show and helping contribute to it and making your friends laugh because yeah. we've all done drama i mean i've done dramas and it's not as good of a hang yeah. it's a little heavy right. people are in character before and after cut and people want to talk about their process a little bit not to say that drama is easier or harder yeah, or that yeah. just drama different. people aren't nice everyone's lovely equally comedy or drama but it's just a more weighted process. How gratifying was it for you guys when last year, after a number of years where Julia or Tony might have been recognized at the Emmys for, for performances, but last year you guys 
one for comedy series. So that was recognized he's 40. So you would put in a few years. Did you think it was still, did it surprise you that that happened last year? Well, the momentum shifted in the room for me when the writers won. Okay. The writers, who, which we were all so psyched because the writers in Hollywood don't get any love. Yeah. They really don't. And that's the core of what makes the show great is the endless hours and the detail that the writers do. So that was like, well, that's a victory right there. Like the rest of the night could go tits up as far as I was concerned <laughs> because the writers won and we right. were psyched. And then as it got to our category, which happens every year, you're like, oh, it's an honor to be nominated. And then two minutes before your category comes up, the cameras come on you and you're like, wait a minute, are we going to win? And then you start caring. <laughs> right, and right. so it got to our category and we were I was sitting next to Tim like, I think we, I don't know. I don't know the writers won. So we're kind of like hedging our bets. And right. then lo and behold, we won. And it was just that sort of stunned moment where you're sitting and then everybody in the aisles getting up and like, Why? oh my God, we did win. <laughs> and you stand up. That's great. And Mel Brooks, I think, presented that category and that was really cool, too, because we had all met him the night before at some party. And he's like, I'm rooting for Veep. Ah, like, he was great. a fan of the show. That's great. Now, since that night, a lot has changed with the show because Armando Iannucci has been succeeded by another showrunner, David Mandel. How has that impacted your experience on the show and just the, the production in general? It was a complete regime change, and it was very nervous. I was very nervous. Julia obviously kept an eye on the continuity, and she handpicked Dave with Casey from HBO, and they said this is the only guy who could do it. But it was walking into a room with 12 new writers. There was a, two or three of the British writers came over, mm -hmm. but basically a whole brand-new room. And we were filming in L.A., and that was odd, too, but good. We had been in Baltimore for four years. So it was a complete change, but... You know, they had those writers who wanted to be on the show had four seasons to watch. They had every intention of not dropping the ball. Yeah. Dave's brilliant and lovely, and everyone was nice. But the process, I think, was the thing. And I think Julia kind of guaranteed that we would still do the rehearsals. We would still encourage collaboration. We would still pitch jokes. It was very open still. Like, nothing changed in the mood. But still, I didn't have faith that it was going to be as good until I saw the first episode, until literally it aired. And the tone was exactly right. right. Like that's that intangible is like on the page. I'm like, okay, we're good. Jokes are there. Funny characters consistent. But when you see it and the tone is complete, you can't, there's no like hiccup. No, I mean, if between you four and five, I wouldn't have known that no. anything had changed. Yeah. That. And that's that intangible of editing and knowing the pace. And, and that's a credit to the editors and Dave and all the directors. Veep's first season coincided with the last presidential election, I believe, which was weird enough, you know, the the Obama-Romney. Oh, yeah. There was plenty right. of oddities about that one. But now you guys are making episodes during the Trump presidential campaign yeah. era. Has the insanity of reality made it harder for you guys to come up with insanity for the show that seems insane? Well, it's interesting because last year's episodes were kind of written pre-insanity, if you will. <laughs> they were breaking stories and whatever, March, April, May, and I don't think the Trump insanity hit. So this year might reflect some of the insanity that we now have license to replicate. Right. <laughs> but in truth, we're leaving the presidency now, so I don't know what that does. But the short answer is beyond insane. Like what he does or his group does is beyond insane. <laughs> like we would never, we would pitch that idea in the 
writer's room two years ago, and people are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what too, what world crazy. are you living right. in? This is a show about real politics. Right. Oh, man. So it's beyond insane. Like, I, I have no idea. But I guess it does expand the boundaries of our show. Yeah. It yeah. does. What is your level of involvement with UCB today, and what are the biggest differences between the way it is today versus the way it was in 1994 whenever it started? I think in improv in general, I think what I'm proud of is that it's more diverse. Truthfully, like when I was in Chicago, it was six teams at Improv Olympic or wherever I was. And there was probably two teams with one woman each. And most of the people on the teams were college-educated, nice, middle-class white guys. (laughs) And now when I go through UCB and I see the people in classes or on teams, it's completely changed in the face of it and the content of it is more diverse and it's more it's expanded to more people which I love that's the thing I'm most proud of is that it's expanded to a bigger audience and it reflects society in a better way not that back in Chicago I think the early adapters were just people who happened to be living around that little theater yeah when you look around and see not only that there are UCB outlets that are you know multiple in major cities but beyond that the fact that UCB alums are dominating the TV scene. Let's just say Please. Aziz Ansari and Ellie Kemper are both alongside you and Amy Poehler nominees for at this year's Emmys. There's many others, Nick Kroll. Do you kind of have to pinch yourself when you think about the fact that this, in a lot of ways, is the result of your efforts? Oh, I'm proud that I'm friends with them and that I got to see them launch their careers, but I don't like take any personal credit for their success. Like in a way, I remember being in New York and Andy Daly, who's so funny, was in a class of mine in 1998, whatever it was, 99. And the minute I saw him, I'm like, oh my God, that guy's so funny. Like, I don't know that I, what I taught him. I maybe have helped him get bit by the bug of improv, but I think what's really cool is the community that exists. Like I'm still friends with those people. We still collaborate on things, a willingness to, you know, I'll do your project for no money. Like I love the the bonds that we've all formed together. And I love that there is a community because this is so preachy, but LA is so lonely. Like people come out here. Mm -hmm. I remember myself, I was here for like a year. And if you're alone by yourself in this town at night and you're struggling to make a break, the nights come in and it's bleak. It can be bleak because you get obsessed or a little depressed about, I'm not doing anything. Yeah. And it's in your face because it's everywhere. Yeah. You you. look up and there's a sign of Hollywood or everything. (laughs) Exactly right. And so What I love is that there's this community where people just focus on the work and they have other friends. And then the other benefit is like when Nick Kroll gets famous, he puts me in his shows or when Andy Daly gets famous, (laughs) he puts me and I do the same to them, you know. So I think having that network and those bonds makes me very happy. And then finally, in light of the fact that there were a few of those bleak nights and there were before that out in L.A., there uh, back in New York or, or wherever there were a few frozen lasagnas that you mentioned and whatever. <laughs> How uh, cool is it to finally be able to introduce yourself, not that you would, but or to be introduced as Emmy nominee Matt Walsh? It's very cool. It's very surreal. The whole process of it is very exciting. And I ultimately am very honored. Like it's, it, it's cool to go through the sort of dog and pony show now that we right. get to do. We get to go to events and I, I'm still excited to meet the other nominees. Yeah. Like I've met most of them, but I haven't met all of them. I'm excited to like go through the the process of sitting in the front row and you know listening to my category all that it's it's wonderful but I mean at the end of the day 
I don't want to talk smack, but <laughs> at the end of the day, when you grow up and watch television, I don't think you remember how many Emmys Kelsey Grammer won. Like it's not, it's it's just how goddamn funny he was right. on Frasier and Cheers. Like so, ultimately, I've already had a certain like piece of like I'm so grateful to be on Veep, and I'm so glad the show is so goddamn funny that this on top of that is gravy. Do you know what I mean? Like the award, the recognition does legitimize you. It does have value, and I, and I am proud that like oh my god all my friends and peers think i'm talented <laughs> that is really cool but i've also felt that success earlier right well congratulations and thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it oh well, thank you thank you very much it's time for today's lucky land horoscope with victoria cash Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.